Hey everyone, and welcome back to the First Act Podcast. This is part one of songwriting and getting your music placed with Michelle Weiss-Maslin. Michelle is an Emmy Award-winning, number one hit music producer, arranger, songwriter, and publisher. She composes and arranges for artists, films, TV, commercials, games, and more. She has had numerous hit songs and cuts all over the world by major label artists. Listen in as we break down the who's and how's of establishing a career as a successful songwriter. With over 5,000 successful placements, this is an episode you're not going to want to miss. And now, hosted by Harry G, this is your one-stop shop for hot talk straight from the top. Whether you're trying to build a job in pop, rock, or any other artsy schlock, here's your top dog with info that can't be bought, it's gotta be sought. So sit back, crack a six-pack, because we're about to chit-chat and rip facts. It's the First Act Podcast. So we've got Michelle Weiss-Maslin, and she is an Emmy-winning number one hit songwriter, music producer with more than 5,000 film and TV placements. Is that right? That's correct. Wow. Doesn't it sound weird to hear that out loud? Yeah. It's, you know, the whole journey is exhausting. So (laughs) for those of you guys who don't know about Michelle's journey, so she has been placed in a number of different movies and TV shows and I believe video games as well, if that's right. Yeah. Ads, promos spanning from Pretty Little Liars to Orange is the New Black to Beethoven Saves Christmas. It's really a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. I'm going to hit you with a bunch of questions to warm us up. So my first question for you is, what was your first job? First job was probably as babysitter. Yeah? At how old? I was about 11 or 12. Well, actually, then I take that back. My first job might have been as a camp swim instructor around the same time. At 10, 11 years old? Uh-huh. Yeah. I learned how to swim when I was one. Yeah. And at a day camp, I was about 12 and I was teaching swimming at the same time. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it's like in the same wheelhouse, like teaching mm-hmm. swimming and taking care of kids, babysitting and all of that. That's great. So at what age did you get into the music industry? Well, the first time I sang publicly, I was five. Early exposure. Yes. And I always knew what I wanted to do. And of course, I performed in school and in camp at all the events. And at summer camp, sleepaway camp, people would start stomping and clapping in the mess hall. And I would stand on a chair and I would sing for the whole camp. And that was, you know, I was eight, nine, starting around then. So always. Always wanted to make music and sing. Wow. Did you ever feel like you were kind of being put on the spot and like it was a lot of pressure on you and people were like, all right, Michelle, go on the chair, sing us this song or sing us what you're working on. Yeah, it's a lot of pressure because you'd be sitting there in the mess hall eating your dinner and all of a sudden people would go, "They, I, do you want me to do what they do? I mean, they would go, yeah. quiet. We want Michelle Weiss to sing a song. We want Michelle. We want Michelle. We want her. We want her. And they go on and on till you stood up on this chair and you sang. <laughs> no accompaniment, you know, just a cappella. So, what yeah. kind of songs would you sing? Were they covers? A song that I always sang. It's an old standard called Love. Ellis for the way you look at me, if you know that song. Yeah. And um, yeah, it was mostly they'd ask me to sing that song. Wow. Yeah. 
And was this like every meal or like every pretty every often? Song? Yeah, like yeah. You know, definitely three, four times a week. Pretty oh often. Goodness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they were all getting a free show. <laughs> they were getting a free show. And I was a tiny little girl, you know, and I would stand up on the chair and I would do that. But it was my passion. So it was fun. Nobody's ever asked me these questions before. So that's really fun for me. And yeah, I sang in the camp in the in the shows and in school and community and in temple and everywhere. All I wanted to do, I would walk down the street and take a walk and sing at the top of my lungs and wake up the neighborhood. That's beautiful. And you mentioned temple. And I know that we spoke about this offline, but you're Jewish as well, like me, right? Yes. So was this a Jewish summer camp that they would have you sing? Yes. Yes. But that's an interesting question that you asked because back in my day, I've been around a long time on this world planet. Back in my day, Jewish people could not go to camp unless they went to a Jewish camp. The camps were segregated. Really? Where did you grow up? In New York City. Yes. But summer camps were segregated. So there were Jewish camps and non-Jewish camps. Interesting. They did not allow Jews to go to non-Jewish camps or join beach clubs. My family belonged to a Jewish beach club because that was mandatory. Jews were not allowed. The anti-Semitism was rampant. Mm -hmm. It's only really in California since the 80s that that's changed when there was a law that desegregated things like beach clubs. So... I never knew this. I grew up, going, like, I guess, you know, with some privilege, right? Be- yeah, because you're, you're having the choice, right? Like I went yeah. to day camp, which wasn't a Jewish summer camp. But then when I was like eight, I'd probably say from like eight to 18, 19, I went to Jewish sleepaway camp. And it was just, you know, a lot of my friends went there. And it was, you know, during the year I'd go to public school. So I didn't have all of my Jewish friends. And I, I felt like I got like the best of both worlds. But I yeah, remember. Yeah, so I went to summer camp because I had to. There was no choice. Interesting. Okay. I was going to say, because I remember like the quiet, please, but it was usually like, you know, dedicate to so-and-so Harrison wants a kiss on the lips. He's waiting. And then, and then, you know, they would embarrass me and they'd be like, they'd call either the girls would call the boys over or the boys would call the girls over. And, you know, it was like camp stuff. And you went to, I went to an all girls camp. Okay. So that probably wouldn't happen. It didn't happen. (laughs) And in those days, that was also common. Most camps were girls' camps or boys' camps. Double in segregation. My, double segregation in my, yeah. in my time, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, this is super interesting. Okay. And it was well, super fun. We didn't. We had socials where the boys would come and dances and from stuff. From another camp. But I don't think on a day-to-day basis we missed them much. <laughs> <laughs> so back to our initial discussion. So like I said, I'm gonna, we're going to run through some questions. So how would you define your role? My role in the world? My role in music. Let's start with your role in the world and then we'll go to your role in music. Okay, because what also happens, I hope for people after they've been on this planet for a long time, is they want to give something back. And so my role in the planet now that I've done a lot and fulfilled a lot of my dreams is to give back and to mentor, and to nurture, and to be here with you sharing my story in hopes that it inspires other people and helps other people to do great things and continue on with their dreams. So I would say years past, decades ago, that was probably not 
my position and mission on this planet. But now I don't need to serve myself. I have the need to serve others, the world, my community, to try to make it a better place. I serve on many boards in the music industry and I volunteer for many things and never sleep because I never have a second. But I really want to give back. And I teach now, which I is only in the last two years that I've really embarked on it so much to really give back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But and my mission as in the music, of course, and in music is to be a great producer and a great songwriter and to put out positive songs. Most of the songs that I create are inspiring, empowering, and hopefully will be motivating. I try not to create too many negative, sad songs, although I do because there's room for them and there's passion and power in that emotion. The majority of the songs that I put out are positive. That's nice to know. And do people normally, I guess now in your career, you get approached, right? People will come to you and say, we have an idea in mind. Michelle, can you write this song for us? This is the mood that we're looking for. Like you have an established career in your own right. Is that what happens now? Or, or are you, do you just get inspired from something that happens in your everyday life? And then you're like, you know what? I think that this producer might like it or this music supervisor might like it. How, how does that process work? Right. So it works always. So I do get asked. I do get asked to create music for things specifically because they know me and know that perhaps I would be a good choice for the creation. Mm -hmm. But I also hustle still. I have songs that I'm pitching to music supervisors or A&R people for artists. So I'm still doing that. I write with major label artists who I get set up with or some of them who I've worked with in the past to contact me and say, I'm making a new album. Let's start writing. And I get calls to just produce or mix things. And so it happens all the way around. And for me, life is inspiring. Everything is inspiring. Talking to you is inspiring. And, you know, sitting in a hot tub, which is my favorite thing to do and swim in a pool when I'm not working or on the beach. I even bring my office to the beach. Now I have a battery charger. I, I sit on the beach and bring my computer and I'll, we'll work on the beach. I mean, for me, that's really inspiring and energizing, but you know, talking to someone on the grocery store line is inspiring. Everything. Last night I met a cool Hollywood agent in the hot tub at a hotel and we were chatting and it's all, everything is inspiring, right? So I use that for my songs, yes, but it's very rare, very rare that I would sit down and write a song for no reason anymore. Mm -hmm. Most people do that. And when I started out, it was all inspiration, mostly heartbreak, because most people start out writing because they're heartbroken and bad things have happened and they feel a need to expunge that. But I would say that pretty much never... Do I sit down and just grab the guitar anymore or sit at the piano and write something? It's very rare. I'm mostly writing on projects because I have deadlines and commissions. And whether I try to procure them or they came to me first, either way, I'm mostly writing on demand. 
that makes sense. And, you know, what I was saying before, like, you know, you've been in your career now quite a while and you're, and you are established and you've, you've worked with many different labels and across many different projects, right? So a lot of people know who you are in this business. And a lot of our audience members are kind of just starting out. Some of them are songwriters, some of them are in bands, some of them want to manage bands or be an agent or don't even know where they fit in, but they're trying to find their spot, right? So what kind of advice or what is a piece of advice that you can give to somebody who is looking to just get started? Well, the first thing one has to do is write. So they have to do what I don't do anymore, which is write all the time. They have to get better at their craft. They have to learn how to craft a well-written song, in my opinion. Taking classes is really wonderful. There are so many places now where one can do that. When I started out, there wasn't that didn't exist. Now you can take all kinds of songwriting courses with major songwriters and learn how to do that. I teach at a great school called songyou.com. And it's a virtual school. I've been teaching there for 15 years. I teach a couple of classes a month and there's bunches of hit songwriters who teach there. And that's really good for people to learn how to craft better because that's the first thing because it all starts with the song. That There's a, an organization called NSAI, the Nashville Songwriters Association International. It's mm-hmm. not only for country music, it's for everything. And it's not only for Americans or Nashville. But this organization, their motto is it all begins with song. And that is the essence. If you want to do what I do, be a songwriter, be a producer, be a performer, is all about the song. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing that one needs to do is hone their craft. And how can they get constructive feedback? Because I think that writing a song or writing anything really is so personal, especially at the beginning, right? And how do you know who to get feedback from and how to not take it in the wrong way? Right. Well, you have to get feedback from somebody you respect, first and foremost, because if you don't respect them personally, you're not going to like what they're saying to you. If it's got some negativity or some, some constructive criticism, because not even negativity, because like when I critique songs, my whole mission is to help them, serve them, make the song amazing and help propel them to be great songwriters. It's not to put them down or cut them down, you know, but sometimes there are some things that need some help. So a school like SongU where I teach is a really great place and you get to choose which instructors you want to go to their classes. You don't get thrown in a class where it's maybe not somebody, their credits don't interest you and their person doesn't. So I, I love that situation. The students that come to me for critique are very engaged because A, they pay for it. Even if it's $5, whatever, small money, they are vested in themselves. So they're paying attention. Mostly they're gracious. Most people who come for free advice are not gracious and are more inclined to not hear and accept the feedback. So now I don't do that anymore. I only... I only give critique for my students or today in this webinar that I mentor at where it's a a controlled environment, right? Where people understand and learn how to take good critique because you are absolutely right. 
it's very difficult. I mean, even I get critique because I'm working on a commission right now for a major company. And basically they hire me to create a certain amount of songs and I have to submit the songs when they're done, not just songs, but the productions, everything. Right. Mm -hmm. And every time they might, they send me, they need this fixed. They want the drums louder. They want the vocal with less effects on it. They want the lyric here changed. They want whatever they want. You know what I have to say? Yes. Yes. And thank you. Always. Thank you. I cannot argue with them, fight with them. My vision doesn't matter. I've already presented my vision. So I've made my vision. Now they need some tweaks. Yeah. Now now it's their sandpaper that they bring to smooth it out in the way that they want, even if it's not the best way. Yes. Or the way I would have done it. In the end, I'm always happy. In the end, it's always a challenge. In the end, I respect them and I pay attention. And that's what we have to learn is to let go of the sacredness to us to improve, to get better. And so we have to be open. Some things are subjective and some things are not subjective. So if the instruments are in tune, that is not subjective. That is fact. Either in tune or it's not. The instruments are playing in time or they're not. The vocals are in tune or they're not. And they're playing and singing in time or they're not. Not subjective. That is is. And that is something when you critique to someone, they can't argue that. It's not tuned. You know, if I don't like something that someone brings me to critique, that's subjective. Right. And I'm always quick to point out, well, it's not my cup of tea, maybe, but that's just me. You know, the person next door might love this. So people have to understand where the critique is coming. Also, the person who gives good song critique or any critique for anything is the person who recognizes what's good first, because there's always something positive. And just the concept that someone created something from nothing is major, right? We have to build them up first before we bring them down to what might need some tweaks. We can't just sock them instantly. So if somebody has someone they're coming to for critique and immediately the person critiquing them is putting down everything, this is not a good person. This person is not building you up and this person is not helping you. They're just beating you down. So what do you think about that? I mean, to me, that's essential. That makes a lot of sense. And that's actually, I think, a lot of really great advice. You know, I I have some experience with talent management, which is what I wanted to talk to you a little bit about. One of the more difficult conversations that I'll say a business person can have with someone who works more on the creative side is providing some sort of criticism, right? Do you have a manager or an agent or? I had a manager for 30 years. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, it was very sad. He was really wonderful. He was really loving and caring and a special, special character. Songwriters don't have agents. Composers have agents, composers who create underscore, but songwriters don't have agents. We have publishers and I have had publishers in my past, but I have been my own publisher 
for the last 30 years. But previous to then, I was signed to like Universal, some major publishers. But now I don't. So now I'm kind of flying free since my manager passed. I see. Mm-hmm. And if you don't mind talking a little bit about the relationship that you had with your manager, what are some really good qualities that you'd like to highlight from your manager and the experiences that you had working with him? Sure. Well, my manager was a quirky guy, kind of the kind of guy that like his shirt was never tucked in or half tucked in. And he, every time he went out to eat with him, he spilled everything on himself. And he was kind of a little roly poly and he was you know, just disheveled, but he was an audiophile. He like knew everything about music and music was his passion. And his father was a famous harmonica player. And like he lived and breathed his songwriters. He mostly repped songwriters, not artists. And I'm a producer. So the product producing came with the package, but it was songwriters who were his passion. And so he was just a quirky guy and he was all love and all heart. And when he wanted to rep you, he put his heart and soul into it. And half of the people he worked with never paid him, which was very sad. He worked without contracts, which is very normal in the music business for managers. They most often work without contracts because, you know, to them, it's like, okay, great. You don't think I'm doing a good job. See ya. No problem. It's kind of works that way. I work with him in an interesting way because I'm so proactive and I'm out get hustling my own gigs and getting my own songs cut. And I always was, I only commissioned him on what he got, what he procured. Right. And that worked out really well for us because then I was never resentful if I got a bunch of stuff and had to pay him, but I always paid him for whatever he got. And he was especially good at setting up collaborations, co-writes it was really good. And he was fearless. He would call record company executives and music supervisors, and he would call famous artists and he would connect people. And he, he had no fear. If he believed in his clients, he bent over backwards for them. So I thought that was a great quality for a manager because he was selfless. It was never about him ever. What was his name? Bob Diamond. Bob Diamond. And his company was called Midnight Management. Yes. Now, just for anybody who wants to Google and maybe try to find more information on Bob. Yeah, Bob was a gem and he died in a very tragic way. And I'll tell you what happened. He had fallen in his apartment and no one found him for four days. And apparently he was banging on the floor when he was on the floor, but nobody came. And I don't think they thought there was anything wrong. You know, they just heard banging, but yeah, nobody came and he died. And the saddest thing about it was that's, he was so selfless that he only cared about us, but I don't think we were as nurturing as we should have been to him, you know? And now since he's passed, it's so interesting because so many things that I've done and I've been connected to and writers and artists that I've connected to came from him. He started that connection chain. Special guy, special, special guy. Thanks for tuning in to part one. Stay tuned for part two. Remember, new episodes release every Thursday at 12 p.m. Pacific. See you there.